0: Daniel. How's it going? Oh, it's good.
1: Happy Friday. I always doing Friday recording. So I always start out with that. But how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing all right. I was telling Patty uh, and Marcy earlier today that I um, haven't been sleeping. So (laughs) (laughs) I got to show uh, Patty what I uh, decided to knit. And then this weekend, last weekend, I took my mom to olympia washington and we did a weaving class that was interesting too so i now i guess i'm going to be a knitter and a weaver when i can't sleep at night so <laughs> watch out christmas presents that's all i have to say
1: yes you're going to compete with gretchen for uh like the top uh knitting and uh knitting award for the company
0: i'll never be at gretchen's level i'll just be <laughs> <that>. she's the <amazing. laughs> baezy all right. Well, should we kick off this uh episode? I think we should. You wanna
1: go over the title and maybe a little context for why we thought of this?
0: Yeah. So uh this episode we're recording episode 21, uh, marriage between pricing, transparency, and patient estimates. So Uh, We're hoping with our guests today that we can dive in and really understand like the complexity of pricing transparency coming from CMS and the new regulatory requirements that continuously are growing Mm -hmm. and get their take on, hey, are patients actually getting any value, or is this just creating a lot of extra work for for our teams? And where should it actually the work actually be pointed? So get their individual perspectives, not necessarily perspectives of their companies, but you know they both of them are leading experts in the industry. So I'm excited to have them today. Cool. Well, let's introduce our guests today. I'll get
1: the introduce our first guest. Uh, currently a treasurer and board member for Naham. So for folks that. Uh, have been listening. We had a lot of AHAB guests. That's exciting. And then uh, bringing over 19 years of experience in revenue cycle and healthcare access services. And then currently the system director of patient access at the University of California, San Diego Health, um, multiple HFMA certifications, as well as CHFP, which is Certified Healthcare Financial Professional. We'll need to like cover all these
0: acronyms at some, some point. Thanks for joining us today, Jacqueline.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: And I screwed up there, Daniel. Jackie is actually the chair of strategic projects now. She's no longer the treasurer. I did the update on my call. She forgot <laughs> to send it to you. That's my bad.
1: <laughs> well,
0: hopefully that role is exciting. Uh just okay. as exciting as the treasurer role. So
3: it is. Thanks.
0: All right. Well, we have another former board member of um of the executive board of NAHAM joining us today. Um, they also have been Prior uh, female and revenue cycle leaders to know from Becker's um, for 2017 and 2018. Also recently published, uh, nationally recognized for a lot of her publications with several um, different business partners that she engaged with when she was back in Texas leading a um, multi-system patient access. She is our director of growth and business development here at Wilshire. Welcome back, Patty.
3: I'm excited to be back.
0: Thank you, guys. All right. Um, so, before we jump
1: into talking about patient estimates and price transparency, all the good stuff that we want to chat about today, um, since you all are both very involved in just healthcare access management at an executive leadership level, I thought you could share a little bit about your growth, professional growth. Um, with Naham, HFMA, or anything else, uh, just we have a lot of early careerists on the podcast that listen, and and uh, oftentimes the question is like, "How did you get to where you're at today?" Uh, so Jackie, do you want to start out just giving a little bit of background on where what has really driven your professional growth over the years?
2: Sorry, I, think,
0: I was like, we stumped her. <laughs>
2: no you didn't but I'm like making sure I'm reading the right call sheet because I didn't see that on mine. oh yeah FYI I thought we were talking about mayhem and HFMA
0: yeah yeah and how is it how has it impacted your growth
2: oh got it okay clearly I need to finish drinking my Starbucks coffee that I have not finished drinking today I think we're shot that I got
0: (laughs) could be the combo
2: it's probably (laughs) the combo. Um, Yeah, so with my professional growth and being part of both associations at NAHAM and HFMA, um, they're well-known professional associations supporting access services and healthcare finance. Um, Being a member of NAHAM has allowed me access to their many tools and resources to patient access. Um, I've been able to grow as an access leader by staying up to date with different industry trends, ensuring operations are meeting key performance indicators, Um, And the access keys, which is a series of 35 KPIs um, that measure how well front-end departments and staff are doing across different domains of patient access is one example of really the many benefits from Naham. I think with HFMA, I've been able to continue to grow professionally by learning how revenue cycle as a whole um, really works. And then the impact that my front-end operations has over the ever-changing healthcare environment Um, I think the networking benefit is amazing. Being a part of these associations has helped me personally build connections with others in similar roles. And oftentimes I'm really able to reach out to them, pick their brain, um, which is always nice to have a team of experts available when needed. So, yeah.
0: Hey, Jackie, what type of um, certifications have you been, you know, have you seen as you've grown as a professional that kind of, where'd you get started with the certification realm and, you know, was it more Nahum or was it more HFMA and then kind of that progressional growth? You know, I I, we know that you have your CHFP from HFMA and that's kind of the all-encompassing hard one to get. I have yet to pass the first test, sadly. (laughs) Partially because I don't study long enough, but, but uh, we know that's one of the harder ones to get. So, you know, what was kind of your growth to get to that point of getting that certification that now you have to maintain through, you know, getting continuing ed credits?
2: Yeah. So with I started with Nayham to be quite honest, right? I was patient access. I was really trying to master that trade of patient access. And so Nayham really encompasses everything front end. And so um, I started with my CHA. So they offer two different certification programs. One is your CHA, which is the Certified Healthcare Access Associate. Um, and that's more for um front end associate levels those without direct reports and then I moved on as I became a leader in access services with direct reports and took my CHAM which is the Certified Healthcare Access Manager um and so it really both certifications allows you to really validate that your knowledge and skills align within industry standards Um, And so that's kind of where I started. Then I was fortunate enough to work for an organization, and I still do work for an organization that has an enterprise-wide membership for HFMA. And so because as part of that membership, um, you're allowed to take the different certification programs, I went on to then um, take my CHFP. Um, I was a little intimidated by it when I read the program. I didn't know, you know, if it was going to be something that um, I would <laughs> pass, or how much I would really learn and and apply in my current role. Um, but the program overall is is really quite amazing, and it helped me learn a better kind of have a deeper understanding of the financial realities of healthcare, um, and then how you know once I learned, I you know, through that program, I was able to apply those ideas on the different financial strategy, and then different insights into future trends, et cetera. And then the CRCR is newer for me, I took it recently to set the example, because I wanted my leadership team to take um, that certification. And so I felt like I needed to lead by example. And so I went ahead and took the CRCR. Awesome.
3: Yeah.
0: Hey, Patty, how about you? Oh, you're on mute.
3: Very similar to Jackie, um, uh, started off um, you know, on the front end um, in patient access before I became a director um, and I took the uh, the CHA certification. And then once I became a director, I took the CHAM and um, became active in Nahum, um, started on their membership committee um, and branched out from there. I think I've been on every position that there is um, except for secretary and treasurer. Um, been president vice president um a delegate national delegate um and it, it's been great um it was a little scary at first to to you know decide to, to jump into one of those positions because you know you don't know a whole lot of folks when you first start out um but it, it's very rewarding once you do join a committee um and a committee is probably the best place to start out um, and then branch off into those other positions, but definitely um, uh, being part of your um, trade organization is extremely beneficial to your to your role because as you do things and and need to um, justify certain things, it's good to have that backing behind you to be able to reach out to peers and network and and, and others and be able to show your CFO that you've got um, you know a good solid foundation. Behind your um, your your request, um, and you've done due diligence in that you know in, in that regard. So um, yeah, now being part of an organization is great.
2: Yeah, I really enjoy um, Patty the NAHAM educational offerings, um, the different on-demand webinars, and then their toolkits are always really awesome. I think for me as a leader, it's one of my um, kind of daily go-tos whenever we're talking about anything such as when COVID had happened, right? I knew that Naham had this disaster toolkit that I could take a look at and see what I could glean from it. They have leadership toolkits. They have the joint commission toolkit, um, just to name a few of them. Um, But I think that the networking for me, uh, as scary as it was when I became a member and went to my first conference and I went alone, no one else from my organization had attended. I was super excited to be there, but I was definitely shy. Um, But the great thing about Naham is I was able to meet people like you, Patty. I still remember the first time that I met you. I think it was back in 2014. Um, and everyone just helps you feel so welcomed. And because we're all so passionate about patient access, it just makes it that much easier to really feel like you're part of a, a big family when you're there. So it's awesome. So if you don't know, Naham's going to have their 50th annual conference. It's being held in Dallas, Texas, April 23rd through the 26th of 2024. Um, and like we said, it's a great way to keep up to date with industry trends and meet others in patient access and build your network. So hopefully we'll see you attend.
0: Did you do that shameless plug? Good job.
2: I did. <laughs> I'm That's being awfully should.
1: quiet on the podcast because I've never been to an Aham or an HFMA conference, so
0: maybe I need to go attend. <laughs> you should. So, as you guys look at, you know. Um, bringing developing your your patient access or your healthcare access, as we're we're now referring to them, since it's covering beyond just the hospital setting, and we're seeing more and more front end uh, teams in in the professional environment start to to adopt what what best practices hospitals have had. Where do you guys start off with your staff and like looking at? certifications or their own individual growth um, around, you know, in, engaging into one or the other or both organizations.
3: Jackie, do you want to second or do you want me to go first? Yeah. Do you want to kick us off first? Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I, I utilize both, um, both areas, HFMA and Naham. I would uh, look at Naham first because that's their primary trade is the the patient access, you know, area. Um, and so we would always look at the chancer, the, the Chaw cert, CHA certification. Um, I know a lot of facilities have that Chaw certification built into their step program um, or their levels um, or some type of a, a pay increase or whatever. They've, they've built that in somehow, which is really good because it, it really um, it, it makes sure that the staff know what they're you know what, the, what, what you're talking about. Um, HFMA, we would branch out into HFMA, the revenue cycle um, uh, training, we'd look at financial clearance, those type of training classes. Um, Yeah, for sure, we would use both for for certifications. Um, And not only for individual, for for staffing, but for um, um, just processes in general. For example, HFMA has their patient financial communication um, best practices. A lot of hospitals a couple years ago, uh, they went down that road and and mastered that, which was pretty, in, um, you know, pretty extensive as far as going in and making sure you had the right forms and the right communication, right information, and you know, I think at the time there was only like ten or fifteen hospitals that got that certification, but it was a, um, you know, it was a, a big kudos to that hospital for going that extra step, and um, A does that a lot with different programs. Yeah. I think,
2: um, you know, different organizations kind of use different tools and different associations differently. I think it just really depends. I know here at the UC, one thing that I'm really proud of is we were able to um, add different career levels in patient access. So it allowed us to have the entry-level staff come in where we're really just looking that you have at least a year of customer service experience, really important on front-end facing patient-facing roles. Um, And then we do have requirements, you know, as you move up the career ladder. So if you're like a level three, as an example, you know, we'll want to make sure that you not only have um, similar experience with the same size organization and type of healthcare organization, um, but we will look to see if you have any types of certifications. And so typically for front end roles in patient access, the CHA is definitely one of those that will push your resume to the top um, as well as um, you know if you have an undergraduate degree or any type of college experience um, patient access as a whole um, doesn't necessarily look at an individual with like the CRCR, but it is a benefit because it tells us as employers that you understand more revenue cycle as a whole which is super important
0: As you guys are building out your patient access, um, you know, career, I'm going to call them career ladders versus uh, in, in that regards, I know Jackie, you and I are engaging on a, well, soon we'll be engaging on a project across uh, uh, um, all of the use with the UCs, looking at how we leverage HFMA to create our career ladders and those certifications, you know, knowing that we're going to have a little uniqueness in the patient access realm versus maybe, you know, end billing where they could go right for their CRCR. Are are you thinking in your light as you, and I know I'm throwing this on the spot on you starting off with CHA and then moving to CRCR or is it one or the other or either one kind of suffices, you know, trying to look at, What are those metrics and measures that we're going to tick to say, hey, you're moving from a patient access, you know, rep one to a two, to a lead, to a supervisor. And eventually we need you to have this level of credentialing and an educational background before we throw you into a management type role.
2: Yeah. So I think definitely for me, the cha has always been really important because when you're, especially if you are just starting out in patient access if so if we're talking entry level, level one and two, I think they need the fundamentals, right? And that's what the CHA really does for you, right? You're able to study and understand front-end patient access specifically, which is key to that individual's success. Whereas if we're looking at Maybe not necessarily a level two or three, but a lead position or even our supervisory positions. I think that's where the CRCR really comes into play because they do need to understand the front end operational impact to all of revenue cycle. And that's where the CRCR is amazing because it has different programs that cover the front end all the way through the back end, SBO, et cetera. And I think, you know, as people, advance in access services and potentially into other uh, revenue cycle roles, that's when that certification really will come into play.
1: As a naive listener, I'm going to pose this question to the group. Thinking about like certification, that can be like a scary word for some people when they think about, oh, I have to do all these these tests, these classes, studying, et cetera. Is, is this like a, a something that somebody can like manage within their full-time job or is this like something that we would expect someone to do like like extracurricular studying
2: yeah I mean I think that supporting our staff with growth and development is super important so I would say as if a really great leader um, you would allow staff dedicated time to be able to grow and develop and so you know, while I would never stop anyone from pursuing these opportunities on their own time, I do think as employers, we should support um the time that it takes for them to to study and become proficient.
3: Yeah, I've, benefit from seen, that, right? I've seen hospitals. Yeah, I've seen hospitals have study groups together and and you know, do flashcards and uh, really promote the 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 test itself and, and working together on it.
0: Awesome. Any final thoughts on NAHAM or HFMA?
2: No, I just think, you know, they're both really great associations that anybody in revenue cycle and patient access should um, take a look at. And if you're not a member, you should really look into the value that comes with becoming a member. Um, And um, I think learning is super important for everyone, regardless of title and And if your organization offers any type of enterprise-wide membership, you should take advantage of, of what's available.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, let's go on that note out to a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: At Voluware, we help healthcare organizations streamline prior authorization submissions with one platform, helping you simplify, connect, integrate, and automate each part of the process. We take your pre-existing workflow and truly automate it, including the submission and verification process. The best part? Voluware automates your prior authorization processes for all of your payers, specialties, and service lines, not just some of them. Valor is built around you. Learn more at voluware.com. That's voluware.com. Are you ready to unlock the full potential of your medical coding team? Look no further than Adeo Technologies, the leading provider of medical coding productivity solutions. With Adeo's Gemini Solution Suite, medical coders are empowered and complemented with cutting edge tools and technologies. The Gemini Coder platform, Gemini AutoCode, and Gemini Coding Assist Solutions work seamlessly together, creating efficiency and improving accuracy in medical coding. Say goodbye to tedious manual processes, cheat sheets, and memorization, and embrace the power of workflow improvements, artificial intelligence, and predictive coding. At Adeo, we believe in the collaboration between medical coders and artificial intelligence to create coding capacity that makes human coders more valuable to their healthcare organizations. Visit our website at www.adeo-tech.com. It's techcom to learn why we love coders and how Adeo Technologies is transforming medical coding productivity one claim at a time. And we're back. All right, uh, we're going to move to the debate. And as you all know, if you listen to our podcast regularly, in this segment we discuss industry trends, out of the box ideas, or topics that get you thinking. Uh, so now, I'm just gonna I'm going to read this almost verbatim here, just for for leveling off our conversation today. Now that CMS has proposed rules, we continue to see one of the most talked about items in revenue cycle IT and revenue cycle management be around price transparency requirements. With the current rules in place, what are some of the challenges that patient that the patient access community is discussing? Um, I'll open that up to the group, but just thinking like patient access price transparency requirements. What are maybe some of the the big key callouts that we're thinking about uh, just in the recent proposed rules from CMS? Who wants to take a Who wants to take a first pass at that?
2: I can take a pass at that. I think what I hear the most is really just about the machine readable files. You know the nature of hospital pricing and rate negotiations doesn't translate easily into a single fixed rate per service, and so it's very complex. And you know our patients encounter this when they're trying to either self estimate or shop for services. Um, also, I think it's important to note that oftentimes, you know, the file it, it doesn't include the professional fees such as like physician, radiologist, anesthesiologist charges, path fees. Um, and patients don't always understand their health plan specific benefits or their out-of-pocket costs. And so overall, the patient access community, you know, wants to provide transparency. Um, but really, what I often hear is it's more accurate to have trained healthcare access staff create the estimates um, versus the patients trying to read the file or creating their own shopper estimate. Um, and honestly, I feel, and I've heard this from some of my other colleagues, is We'd really like to see, um, you know, the health plans have more responsibility in having to provide transparency to patients and not just the organizations themselves.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think that there's, you know, I think everyone's trying to do a good job um, with price transparency. Um, I I think there's a, estimates is the big player in this too is making sure that that estimate is correct um, and getting that information to the patient. Um, But yeah, I agree with everything you said there, Jack. Um, You know, we're, we're trying to get there. I just don't think we're there
0: Yeah, I I, th- I agree with you guys. I think that you know we're all uh, organizations are intentionally meeting the intent of the law, right? And the law is to, in that regards, post your charge master, post where what is your machine readable file, post what are your top payers and what your negotiated contract rates. And I think that we're all a little like a little still leery on that component of it because. You know while it's transparent intended to be transparent for patients, it's not the patients necessarily leveraging and using that. It's health plans leveraging and using that from our experience of looking at it, you know from a provider' standpoint and saying, "Oh, okay, well, this is your negotiated rate with payer x, so now payer I'm payer y, and I'm gonna want that same rate because it's a better rate. But what they're not factoring in is how many covered lives is our organization anticipated to get from you." Do you have a direct where we're maybe you're only you know um uh, your primary only in network in that space, and you know you're getting a better rate because of that um that type of deal, so I do think that that lends to open things up. I think pricing transparency. And, you know, when we look at it and associate it even with the balance bill, and I know I didn't bring this up in our prep call, but even with balance billing of like saying, hey, if you're an out-of-network physician grip practice or anesthesiology practice and you're providing services at an in-network, you now have to take an in-network rate. I think that's the right thing for the patient, right? That's saying, hey, you're going to process it as an in-network rate. You're going to figure that out. The difficulty of that is on the provider side is... What is an in-network rate when I'm out of network, you know, and how do I calculate that? Is it an average of it? And then am I negotiating that? It, I can't do single case agreements for every single account. That that becomes tedious and manpower hours. So I think from a transparency perspective it puts a lot of things out there for all of us to say, yeah, we do want to provide this information to patients and we want to do it where it can be self-service, especially for, you know, your Gen Z's, your millennials, the people who want to self-service and are accustomed to that. But at the same time, we've not educated the public and the consumers in what are CPT codes? What are diagnosis codes? What are the appropriate pairings of that? Um, What's layman's term technology of that? You know, what we're all we're required to do is here's our, you know, our procedural code and the CPT code, and here's what we call it. But there is no convention saying, hey, you have to use the Medicare, you know, layman's term or the Medicare short description or primary. And and then what happens when it's just a flat you know, surgical level. That means nothing to a patient because then you have a surgical level out there and they're looking for that procedure right in your list. But yet, no, it falls into a surgical level. It's coded by coding. So they need to call to get an estimate. And that's where I think we run into, are we double dipping and causing more work and kind of how it how that's going to play out over time, especially as CMS continues to increase regulations associated to pricing transparency. And they have the right idea in mind. It's just they're putting it on the wrong... Back to your guys' point, they're putting it back on the wrong team. A provider doesn't know a patient's network benefit, but the network knows what their benefit is. And they also know who they're contracted with and what they're going to pay that contracted rate at. That's if the health plan loaded their contract correctly too. That's a different oh. podcast. <laughs> yeah,
3: I mean, just to give just to give an example, Evan. Um, you know, I recently had surgery, and um, when um my physician told me I was going to need to have surgery, he scheduled me for the surgery, and I immediately called my payer, my my plan, to find out. Okay, well, what's my what's my out of pocket going to be? And um uh, my health plan told me that they, they couldn't tell me I needed to call the the, uh, facility because they didn't know the charges. And I was kind of frustrated with that because all over the website, it says, you know, price, you know, click here for care or whatever. They can tell me my physician charges but they can't tell me my facility charges. So then I call the facility and, um, you know, they're going to get me a pre-registration person, you know, over the next couple of days, it's going to call me back with an estimate. And they call me back with an estimate and the estimates like, $5,000 for my, for my surgery. And I asked to have that, you know, it seemed a little high to me. Could, can I have somebody look at that, review, review it? Um, And uh, they did, but you know, that's what it was going to be. And so I paid because that's what it needed to be. But then my EOB comes in and the EOB says I owe $238. But here I am in healthcare I couldn't find out what the estimate was, you know, what what to look for. I'm asking everybody I know about the, you know, estimate. The estimate that they give me is $5,000 based on what my plan says, what they think. So they're doing a good faith estimate. They did everything they're supposed to do, but the estimate says this is what's owed, but that's not what was owed. So it's just frustrating. It's frustrating, I think, for the staff. It's frustrating for the patient. And then, you know, I think leadership then though, behind the scenes, they think we're doing price transparency. We're doing a great job. We've got the we've got the machine readable format. We've got the information. We've got the estimate in place. But it's you know, from a patient experience perspective, it's not there yet.
0: Yeah. And I think that we run into right, and like Jackie, I think you guys are experiencing this probably. I I know um I know uh, one of your sister sites is experiencing this around ABNs, right? So if you're a Medicare patient and we overestimate by twenty percent or by a hundred dollars, whichever is greater, you don't pay. You you pay what that amount that you estimated was. That's all you can charge the patient, right? But you don't experience that when you're a commercial payer or you're an out of network patient or any of that and i think the hard part is is that even even our contracting solutions on the provider side don't aren't necessarily always 100% accurate. We're loading a contract based off of the complexity and sometimes the system can't even do the math for us. So that's why you see an overestimate or you see an underestimate sometimes as well. Um and there and, and nowhere does it you know I know we all put this in our language on the on the provider side of like hey if you if you have a complication, you know, you could pay, end up paying more But what does that really mean to the consumer? And I'm, you know, I'm sure call centers and Jackie, you probably get it from a patient who comes back for a routine procedure is like, am I going to pay more this time? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, you know, my staff, you know, some of their frustrations that they've articulated to me is really, you know, they work really hard to create these estimates or we have the system creating these estimates. We've done a lot of build right over time and validation to make sure they're accurate. We have an estimate finalized, we present it to the patient and the patient goes, this is wrong, right? And then we're stuck with going, okay, they think it's wrong. What's wrong? And you have a line of patients if you're on the front end. So you're trying to quickly understand, because you don't want to dismiss the patient, right? What it is that's wrong with it. And you'll have times where they're absolutely right. When we had originally quoted it, they hadn't met their deductible but now they've had services since when we created the estimate and now they've met their deductible. So their estimate is different. So then you have them next time when they're repeat customers, they don't even want to talk about an estimate with you because every time I come here, you get it wrong. So they lose trust in you. And, and, you know, and, and the staff are kind of caught in the middle with going, well, I'm being told by my leader, I need to provide the estimate. I need to have this, you know, transparent conversation with the patient pre-service. And when I'm trying, you know, the patient, you know, either doesn't want to hear it or they get very upset by it, rightfully so, right? Because we've now quoted them wrong however many times, or we have it right, but because we've quoted wrong in the past and we're now confident, like we just re-reviewed your benefits, here it is, the patients don't believe us. So it, it's definitely challenging to be in patient access on the front end, trying to, help patients, um, you know, understand what the cost of their care is going to be.
1: It almost makes an argument that like, if we are seeing inaccurate estimates, whether it's being generated by a person or the system that like, we do maybe, I think a lot of myself included, like if I was not in the ground or in the weeds on this, I might think, oh, we have uh some patient estimates like tools that they can go use. And there's a machine readable file. I just wipe my hands and move on. There's not a need to really invest in this further. Um, but it sounds like there really could be a loss of patience or just loss of loss of trust in our health system if we don't maybe take some some effort um to get these estimates in place. I know we've talked about the front end impact. Um, do you see these issues impact other Rev Cycle teams just across across the system? Like are, what are you hearing oh, from your sure. colleagues and peers?
3: For sure. The 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 back end, I mean the, the business office, you know, they get the calls because we've either collected too much and now they want their refund and they want their refund now. Um, and they want to know why we collected what we did. And so they're kind of caught in the middle. And so um, I've had to do retraining or training with the with the business office to explain to them how we came up with the estimate we did because in the very beginning it was you know they, they had no clue where we were getting the estimate and and what information we were given to the patient um because you know there's always a disclaimer that's given to the patient that it is an estimate and etc and and so we want to make sure that we're um consistent in that message but then also the business office knows what's being relayed to the patients so when they get that call they can handle it appropriately but yeah there was always a um uh an influx of calls and and stress on their end as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely, Patty. And, you know, even though our analytics team helped us create a report, and we review it monthly to see estimate accuracy, um, we review those kind of overestimated and underestimated, etc. Um, and different trends, you know, was it a patient, was it a user, was it the system, etc. We continue to see an increase too in, in patient calls and emails um, for estimate assistance, whether it's them not wanting to create their own, which is fine. And they want someone to help them with it Um, or the post billing assistance there. I talked to our SBO interim director and she said, yeah, our phone calls continue to increase and both areas, mine and hers, we've had to increase our hours of operations. We've hired new positions to help create estimates and handle patient inquiries. Um, So it's, it's definitely um, impacted revenue cycle teams as a whole.
0: Do you do you see it stretching beyond just the revenue cycle teams as well? I mean, I know, I, I know, you know, from covering from a back end perspective, it, it, it they definitely see the brunt of it, or customers, you know, the call centers are seeing the brunt of it. But it, is it impacting managed care contracting or even the physicians? Um,
2: You know, I'm not sure. I know I do hear sometimes from different physicians where it's more the physician is advocating for the patient and they want to know what the cost of care will be for them. So they are directing patients to our area. Um, Central scheduling is decentralized here at UC San Diego Health. And so I do know that that team, um, when scheduling patients, they're getting a lot of questions about um, how much it's going to cost them, you know, are they in network, et cetera, Um, And I know our contracting teams have created new um, web pages for patient inquiries. Um, Whether or not it's all related to price transparency, I don't know. It could just be that we're seeing more and more patients who, um, you know, like to shop around and they're really good consumers and they want to know pre-service what things are going to cost them. But definitely have heard from a variety of sources that, um, you know, patients are are inquiring about what it's going to cost.
0: Are you guys doing uh, estimates and pricing transparency come the new year? I mean, Patty, I know that you ran into this as you were covering for your last client. You you and I were there for the dual changes twice, <laughs> twice and and also knowing that, you know, Jackie, you're at an academic center that has a different fiscal year, so you're redoing pricing rates, you know, mid, I'll call it mid-calendar year. How are you guys tackling that with your estimates and then also, you know, providing that transparency back to patients and from a consumer perspective?
3: I think what we were looking at was um, retraining of staff, just making sure that they fully understood the regulations and then also um, the estimates and what to do when they um, thought an estimate was wrong or that there wasn't an inaccuracy there, you know, what to do, what steps to take. So we uh, did some retraining um, and then also just fine tuning the estimates, uh, putting together a real strong QA process so that if um, there are um, outliers, what's, what's going on with these outliers, just staying on top of the estimates.
2: Yeah, Patty, kind of the same here. You know, first we try to make sure that we have all the correct stakeholders engaged in discussions early on. Um, As you mentioned, you know, making sure that staff are trained and up to date on the different regulations, that they understand clear escalation pathways to take, um, which is always important. Um, And then, you know, I, I think we made a commitment that, as frustrating as the price transparency legislation is that we need to continue to remember that it's the right thing to do for our patients and for their experience. And, you know, we really wanna make sure that even if we have to go above and beyond the rule of law here, um, to make it meaningful for them, that that's what we're going to do. So we're gonna invest in continuing to to do what's right for our patients and and make sure that their uh, information we provide them is as accurate as possible.
3: Jackie, did you have um, non-revenue cycles? Team members go through the training as well
2: we did mm-hmm.
3: we did too yeah
2: because it's very important because you never know where the patient is going to pose their question right and you may not right. know the full answer but if you have a high level understanding like when no surprises act came out right like if a patient came in and said where's my good faith estimate We didn't want someone on the receiving end going, what, what is that? We wanted them to be familiar with the terminology that could potentially be used and for them to know who their resources and where to get that patient to.
0: What are some of your guys' final thoughts on how organizations should, you know, prepare for the changes with the new rules coming up, especially since they're just proposed still?
3: I think there's still a big disconnect between um, uh, where patients can get the information. So they can get the information from the um, machine-readable information. They can get it from estimates. They can get it from, you know, the No Surprises Act. They can get it from the transparency. It's all these different areas, but they're not tied to one another. So they're not feeding the same information. So there's there's room for error. Um, So I think that we've got to get on the same page and make sure that we're giving the same estimate, regardless of which, where the patient's getting it from.
2: Yeah. And I think for us, you know, obviously we're going to wait and see if anything changes because oftentimes things change or get delayed, but, um, you know, we're ready to take action if we do need to standardize, um, you know, how the information is formatted for our patients to be able to hopefully better Understand what they're looking at, um, and so we're 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 patiently waiting just to, to see what happens. But we are starting the discussions now just to make sure that we can hit the ground running when it becomes final.
0: Yeah, I the proposed rule. I put a quick presentation together for one of our clients, and it's fifteen pages of slides, like outlining what recommendations they need to have, where do they need to make modifications. And really, it, the changes aren't really helping the patient at all. It's actually potentially going to add some additional confusion. Um, and, and it would be nice to see. I think the biggest part of the proposed rule is there is language now to start to push back on, at least the managed care, Medicare and um, medical or Medicaid or inject in your case of California medical like required uh, some additional requirements there. Um, you know, I think balance bill- the balanced billing laws within the state le- level actually provide a little bit more in the transparency and estimate realm, I think, um better language of the intent than I think what some of the federal um intent is right now. So um it would be nice to see them adapt some of the state information and then the ease of it as well. So
1: do we need to send you to Washington, Evan?
0: Get you in front of Congress? No no go lobby would... for uh, for some change i am not a good lobbyist ask patty <laughs> i just speak my mind and run
3: <laughs> runs yeah
0: all right well let's take a quick break and we'll be right back
3: there are thousands of medical offices
2: and facilities across america each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance.
0: And we're back.
1: All right, uh, just to wrap up today's podcast, we're going to transition to the Wilshire Lab. Again, no direct questions from listeners. So if you're a listener out there, please let us know if you have questions or topics you want us to cover. But uh, just to have some fun with our guests today, Want to get to have our listeners get to know a little bit more about you and get some advice, and so just uh, pose a question: What is one major professional accomplishment you are most proud of, Patty? Do you want to start us?
3: Oh, um, sure. I would say that um, my um, biggest professional accomplishment that I'm most proud of would be of um, uh, centralizing a pre-registration insurance verification department. I did that back in the early days of 2006, 2007. So it was before centralization. Um, And so uh, that was a big initiative. Had to centralize it, take all the uh, folks from hospitals. And, um, you know, that wasn't very politically, uh, uh, people were not happy. um, But um, it was a good move. Um, and uh, we were able to uh centralize and, and really do some really wonderful th- things as a result that. So that that would probably might be my biggest accomplishment.
2: All right. So for me, I mean I have a similar story there, but I think mine is really more of my personal accomplishment. So I'm most proud of earning my master's degree in business administration. Um, I'm the first person in my family to attend college. Um, And I did so while working full time and raising three small children. Um, It really helped me kind of realize my strength and my determination that when I put my mind to accomplish something and you work hard that anything is possible. And so professionally, it's really helped me address, I feel more complex business challenges and to enhance my marketability. Um, And I'm very proud to have received my graduate degree overall. Um, like Patty mentioned, um I've had the opportunity to work at various organizations and I also um helped centralize or create an authorization team um based on denial findings. And so being a um new leader, um, it was my first management role. Um, it was it's something that I still look back at and I think, wow, you know, if I didn't have the the, the fundamentals that I learned throughout going to college, I don't know if I would have been able to um, to do any of that. So very proud of that.
0: So as we stick with the early careerist theme here, um, what's one piece of advice that you would give an early careerist for their own professional growth?
2: I think for me is really to think of yourself as a lifelong learner, you know, make it your goal to learn something new, um, which will help you reach any professional goals you have for yourself And really to remember that employers are often interested in seeing that you're open to listening, learning, and growing in the role. And the more that you learn, the more of an asset you will become to your employer.
3: Mine's more like a network, Uh, making sure that you um, develop those connections, network. Um, You don't always have to uh, reinvent the wheel, always reach out to others. Uh, share best practices, Um, you know, don't keep things internally, just be sure to share and always reach out to folks. Um, I think that's been probably the the biggest benefit of my career is, is just networking and just having all the, uh, the connections that I have, just being able to reach out to folks. And and I think anybody realizes that they can reach out to me today and ask for something and I'm going to, you know, respond back with something because it's just, in my nature that's what i want to do is is figure out you know um the the answer to the problem
0: okay daniel before i let you wrap us wrap us what's your most major professional accomplishment cuz you bypassed this i went back and listened to the original episode we asked each other these questions so i got
1: off the hook i didn't realize ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see um I don't want to take a cheater answer. I mean, I did not go to school to work in healthcare. That was like um, not something on my roadmap. I went for economics, thought I'd do like banking, finance. And it was like, I I remember I had a six month gap because I graduated early. And so the only place that was hiring at the time was Epic. Like who hires in February? And they hire apparently every month. So I was like, I'll do this for a little bit and I'll move on and go back to finance. And I think it's like, what, eight years later and I'm still doing this. And I've had the opportunity to go overseas. I've worked with over a dozen health systems, and um, I'm now a director in an operations role, which is really weird. Um, so it's it's been a it's it's been a career that started from something that I had no interest. I didn't even know what it was. I showed up to the interview, and I was like, I don't actually know what this company does or what healthcare is. I didn't I, I didn't actually know it was for healthcare. That was uh, I, I'm surprised I got I got a job and landed in the industry. But I've made a career out of it, and that for me is uh, unexpected and, uh, something I'm, I'm proud of like sticking with it for as long as I have.
0: And you do a great job. Like Daniel asked some amazing questions to Patty. And I even stumped (laughs) me this week. I had to go phone a friend from, (laughs) on one of his on where he's filling in as an interim director. So. It's
1: fun. I learn something new every day. That's also, I mean, the lifelong learning, um, I don't think there's like a guide. I mean, we talk about like certifications and, and conferences and networking, but there's no like guidebook for any of our jobs. No, so I mean, yeah. to, for to Patty's point about networking, like you do have to phone a friend for literally everything because I don't think anybody could tell you this is what you're actually supposed to do every day. That doesn't exist. Yeah. All well, right. should we wrap up here? Sounds good. Thanks for thanks, uh, Jackie and Patty, for joining us and for season two, episode 21. Wow. That's so many episodes. The marriage between pricing, transparency and patient estimates Uh, for folks who want to reach out to you, the network or just, I don't know, chat, grab tea or something on a Zoom call. uh, What's the best way to, to reach you? And that can be any medium. Jackie, what's the what about you?
2: Sure, so you can email me at jdjordan at or you can find me um, on LinkedIn as
3: uh, Jackie Jordan. And I'm at p.consolver at the Group.net. Is that right? Right.
0: That's right. <laughs> All right, well, I think that's it for us today. Uh, and a uh, quick shameless plug, we would love to have you. We're playing season three. Uh, we'd love to get more listeners to actually um, join us on the podcast and share their thoughts about revenue cycle and healthcare IT and where we're headed. Um, so if you would like to, please reach out to us at uh, the Wilshire podcast at thewilshiregroup.net. And that's it for us today. Bye-bye. If you like today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG, Wilshire Group at TWG Health, on Facebook at the Wilshire Group, or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember,
1: if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel.
0: If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts, or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is
1: to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is
0: executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.